0: Well, good morning, church family. My name is Dave King, and I've been attending here since 1985. I know I don't look nearly that old, but I am. When Randy initially asked me to um, consider speaking today, I I responded with uh, an email that had three concerns in it. My pride... My ego and my shame. Some of my recovery friends who don't attend here were scared for me, asking if this church was safe enough to share this kind of story, to talk on this topic. Um, I think it is. I know that every Friday night at Celebrate Recovery. And today, um, especially, um, you know, it's Palm Sunday, right? And uh, we know that Jesus was welcomed into the city of Jerusalem with palm branches, with folks singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And a week later, they were saying, crucify him. And a few hours later, Jesus said, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then on my way to work, or not work, this isn't work, on my way to to church today, you know, I had a text from my daughter, my eldest daughter, saying that she loved me. which just wrecked me, because it was one year ago today, this very day, probably about an hour ago, that we were driving back from Gulf Shores, Alabama, and I had received the call that she had overdosed on heroin, and that her mother had performed CPR and saved her. Hosanna in the highest. God saves us. He saves all of us. So I'm prepared. I've got my Kleenex and I've got my water. So that way if I get too choked up, I can stall and take a drink and whatnot. I won't blow my nose, I I promise. Today is the last message in our Glittering Vices series. A series that's examined the seven deadly sins their historical origin and development and relevance for our life today. And I think the timing of this message is a little ironic, considering it's probably the last day of spring break for for many people, you know, who have spent the preceding week in warm climates contemplating the vastness of God as they stared out at the ocean, or that they've reflected on the warmth of God's love as they soaked up the sun on the beach, listening to the latest version of Amazing Grace or um, some other Chris Tomlin worship song. I'm sure that's exactly what Randy is doing right now um, as I begin to talk. He's probably at a golf course, not a beach. You know, and the point isn't that spring break trips are bad, or that they shouldn't be fun, or that our minds should be occupied with spiritual and theological matters every second of every day. The point is just that from talking about spring break, you are already keenly aware of the temptation, the vulnerability, and the risks that some situations and environments present in our lives, some by choice, some by coincidence, all with the potential of altering the trajectory of our lives. And we are confronted with more substantial challenges in our daily lives than spring break moments. Um, Consider the following commercial and product images and logos that are going to appear on the screen behind me. And this is a little bit of audience participation. So the first one is, you're going to tell me, what, what is this logo? Anybody know? You can shout it out. Cialis. All right, what's the next one? What's this one? Man, you guys are right on this. You know it right like that. What's the next one? Hardies. It's funny, I, I heard it more sound like hardies, like yeah. Let's show the last one. Yeah. So what what images, you know, what thoughts, feelings are coming to mind and think of it like this, especially if I would have said sports illustrated swimsuit edition. Some of you are already ahead of me on that you already knew probably not thinking about sports so you know it was really a struggle to find images that were actually tame enough to display at church um, many of the Hardee's images at least from my opinion and perspective I considered them to be soft porn they really are they're disgusting personally I don't eat at Hardee's I, I'll, I'll never set foot in the Hardee's And there are other restaurants like Hooters. The list goes on. I'll never eat at Hooters. Never have, won't. That's not because I'm holier than thou, as you'll find out. And just by displaying these images or mentioning the products, your mind is already recalling a wider range of stimuli that you've been repeatedly exposed to over time. Medicine, clothing, food, magazines, and much more. I really don't have to exert much energy in making the point that our culture and society is extremely sexualized, that our affections and desires are preyed upon with great allure. And this isn't a new phenomenon. I'm fairly confident that Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas didn't go on spring break. They didn't have to switch channels when the Victoria's Secrets commercials appeared on the screen, but they were well familiar with the struggle and the danger of lust. It's an old struggle that's perplexed the smartest, deepest thinkers and theologians who sought to be free from carnal distraction in their pursuit of God. It was true for them and it's true for us. Augustine found lust to be the one demon that he had no success in In exercising through willpower alone. And on the screen you'll see an excerpt from his confessions where he says, My sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in God, but in myself and in his other creatures. And the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. Would we agree with Augustine? that pursuing pleasure, beauty, and truth within ourselves and through creation apart or instead of God is sin? And that the result is pain, confusion, and error? Or do we attempt to apply an enlightened approach, a more tolerant view of personal truth and fulfillment to this particular topic, hoping that it will produce less pain and confusion, that we will secure happiness apart from God? Engineering our happiness on our own terms in this manner will always leave us empty rather than fulfilled and connected. God doesn't want us to be confused when it comes to this matter. And He doesn't want us to have an empty existence absent of pleasure or to be unable to admire beauty. He made us as sexual beings, and we know that sex itself isn't sinful, and neither is sexual desire. Sexual desire is normal and a part of being human. You can have sexual desires. You can feel sexual attraction. And even experience sexual temptation without sinning. But putting this practice into our daily lives is a challenge. It's probably fair to say that many of us, if not all of us, come from some dysfunctional family system. Most of us have never learned or were never modeled what true intimacy looks like. We confuse sex with love and lust with desire. And if we came from a family that was in denial, that kept secrets, that used shame to control us, that were physically, emotionally, or sexually abusive, then odds are our view of sexual desire has been goofy for a long time. Certainly was for me. So, how do we define lust and know that it's sin? How do we know when we're on the slippery slope or when we have crossed over the line? How do we live in today's technological and personally permissive era without relying on lust as a woefully inadequate substitute for the wonder, beauty, and affection of God? How do we do that? So here's the big idea, and I'll repeat it throughout. Sin is serious. Christ is the answer. And we need Him more than we think. Much more. You know, the Greek word that's translated lust is epithymia. It's to desire, to lust after, to covet, a craving, a desire for what's forbidden. It's the same word that's used in Mark 4.19 in the parable of the sower, where the desires, the epithumia, for other things come in and choke the word. It's found in Colossians 3.5, in the list of our earthly nature that Christ puts to death. It's associated with other words and phrases like these throughout the New Testament. It's the corrupt desires of the flesh. It's deceitful and evil passions. It's sexual immorality, porneia. Simply put, lust is a distorted desire. It's a sexual desire that dishonors God and disregards its subject. Proper sexual desire should be guided by two concerns. Honor toward the other person and holiness toward God. Lust does neither. It is passion run riot that attempts to use sexual satisfaction to fill the void in our soul. And at its essence, it declares that something other than God is more to be desired than God, which is idolatry. Which is sin. And like all sin, it separates us from God. And as Peter says, it wages war against our soul. John Owen wrote this in the 17th century. He said, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you, it will kill your soul. Sin is serious. Christ is the answer. We need him more than we think. Now what's the big deal about this? You know, am I just some 56-year-old guy who's been around so long uh, that is uh, offended and desensitized and on a soapbox? Is that really, you know, what this is about? In 1994, Archibald Hart, the former dean of the graduate school of psychology at the Fuller Theological Seminary, Uh, detailed the struggles of good Christian men with lust, pornography, sex, and marriage in his book, The Sexual Man. He did research on good men, people that wanted to follow God and were committed to God that still had these struggles. Twenty years later, the struggles persist for men with one notable difference. It's not just a problem with men. Women also struggle. In a subsequent book, Thrilled to Death, Hart writes that the endless pursuit of pleasure is leaving us numb. The myth is that God is going to give us joy while we are abusing our pleasure systems. And Christians aren't exempt. We are not immune from this issue, and perhaps we struggle more because of our shame and secrecy. The bottom line is that we weren't designed to be satisfied by temporary fix. When we try to make physical pleasures fill the gaps in our hearts that God can only fill, and when we define happiness in terms of them, we deify the object. We become idolaters. And that's a big deal to God. And it should be to us as well. It's a big deal because of who God is and what He expects. He is holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Lust dishonors God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Without purity, we can't see Him. It's a big deal because of who we are. Dallas Willard says, You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. You're a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God. Our deep desire reflects a deep longing for God. We're co heirs, we're sons and daughters with Christ. And when We engage in lust, we treat his creation selfishly, and we use other people for our own devices without seeing them as a whole person. It's a big deal because of what it is. And I've already said this it's idolatry, it's misplaced affection, it's indulging our sinful nature, our old nature. And it's a big deal because of what it does. It will wreck your life. And it will wreck the lives of others. People that you care about the most. It fragments your soul. It will numb you, not heal you. It will slaughter you, not save you. You will lose far more than you'll ever find. And it will lead you to other sins. If you think about it, it's a terrible exchange. We are so valued that we're these eternal souls cherished by God. We defile the sacred. We degrade our minds and thinking, and we deify the carnal. Our bodies are the temple. Our minds are to be renewed. Romans 12. We're to think of things that are noble and pure. Philippians 4.8 We're going to use our bodies to serve and glorify God. If you think about it in proper focus, lust wants too little. Not the fullness of God's intent, not intimacy, not nurturing and wholeness. It wants too little. The story that we're going to look at here in just a moment is the story of David and Bathsheba. It's found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And uh, it's on page 263 and 263 of your, your Bible. While you're turning through that, we don't, we don't have enough time to go through the entire account of both chapters. So what I want to do is, is I guess, give some background a little bit. First of all, even though you may be familiar with this story about David and Bathsheba, I have missed the point. It's not just a story about David and Bathsheba. There are others who are deeply affected by these events captured in the chapters, by David's choices Uriah, Joab, a son. Servants, soldiers, a nation. It's not just about David and Bathsheba. It's really a proof text for unmanageability and insanity. It's a supreme illustration of how selfish, self-centeredness of lust can cause what Aquinas and Gregory call blindness of mind. So think about this, that David was the king Yahweh chose. 1 Samuel 16, 1-3 He was a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13-14 He was a lover of God's decrees. He delighted in God's laws. Read Psalm 119 David had God's favor. He wasn't deprived. He was blessed with so much and as God says in chapter 12 he would give him even more how could the beloved do such a thing? I've asked myself that same question. It's no little irony that we're talking about King David, and here I am, David King. Oh, you just got that, huh? Well. <laughs> David loved God's law, he knew God's law, he lacked for nothing, and yet the rule book of don'ts did not help him. And as I went through this account, I counted that David broke six or seven of the Ten Commandments just in this particular situation. He made sexual desire his God. Idolatry. He ordered and conspired to murder. He committed adultery. Stealing. I think if you take somebody's wife, that's stealing. He was dishonest, and he coveted his neighbor's wife. He was a churched guy. He was one of us. Have we not been blessed beyond measure? Have we not been chosen by God? Are we not in need of God's grace? And yet have we not returned to the thing we vowed? That we would never do again. Sin is serious. Christ is the answer. We need him more than we think. So as you look through chapter 11. I just want to kind of go through and highlight some of the things from. Each verse you'll see that David did not go in verse 1. He as other kings would be out with his armies. David didn't go. He remained home in Jerusalem. He was in the wrong place. Verse 2. So as you read this, think of the similarities with us. Do we go to wrong places? Do we remain in a place where we need to not be? David saw too much. Verse 2. He saw that she was beautiful. That's not from a passing glance. David pursued. in Verses 3 and 4. He sent people to find out about her. He sent people to bring him to her. What are we pursuing? And then some translations say David took. Verse 4. David's royal self-indulgence our self-indulgence. And when he took Bathsheba you'll notice that there is No hint of caring. There's no word of affection. He doesn't call her by name. He doesn't even speak to her. And at the end, she's simply referred to as the woman. Demeaning and impersonal. Further, you see how David manipulated and deceived. Tries to carry on small talk with Uriah. When Uriah comes back, David's not even shocked, out of his denial, by Uriah's integrity. I I, I can't go home. I got to, you know, I can't do that. So then David came up with a plan. In fact, he had three plans, verses 6 through 15. Uriah, take a shower. That'll help. Nope. All right, let me think of another I think I'll get Uriah drunk. That's what I'll do. Nope, still didn't get home. I've got a better plan. I'll send an execution letter with him and send him to the front where he's killed. And in David's encouragement to Joab, we see his casual view of the sin. This kind of thing happens in war. Rationalizing, minimizing, and distorting the intent and the impact of what he had done. And you'll see that he did not mourn. All this time, God is silent. We we don't hear him or read of him until verse 27 where it says, David did evil. In the eyes of the Lord. Some of your translations may say it displeased God. Literally it means he he did evil. Sin is evil. And doing evil in God's sight implies that God is watching. And he was. With David he saw all of it. Lust. Sex. Deceit. Deceit murder with no moral pause, no hesitation. It's not just a misstep. It's not just an error in judgment. It's evil in God's eyes. Sin is serious. Christ is the answer. And we need Him more than we think. So, I've always wondered, I'm just going to conduct a little experiment, I guess, and ask this question that I pondered since I was in grade school. When a tree falls in the forest and no one's there, does it make a sound? You can talk out loud back to me. No one's there and a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? Yes. It does. Right? Right? The laws of physics still exist, right? Everything in creation or in that force, here's that reverberation. And so it is with David. Man is not the audience. Man is not the focal point. There is no secret sin. Nothing goes unnoticed. And certainly not so, you know, with David. In chapter 11 we see that David did all the sending, right? Chapter 12 we see that God does the sending. He sends Nathan. So just because the silence of God exists doesn't mean that God is absent. And that because he's silent doesn't mean he's sightless. He is not a passive onlooker in our lives. He's vigilant. And he pursues us. And isn't that what we want? Could you imagine if that were not the case? That in our sin, that God abandoned us and did not pursue us. So in chapter 12, God intervenes. Nathan shows up and he tells David a story. And David is still blind. His self righteous anger in verse 5 flares up and pronounces judgment on this man in the story. And then Nathan says these words You are the man. I don't know if you've ever been the man looking in the mirror. Hearing those words. You are the man. I have. Verses 7 and 8 recount the blessings that David had. So senseless for him to do this. 7 through 12, we hear God's judgment, the sentence... And in verse 13, David's confession. And later in verse 13 of chapter 12, of God's forgiveness and His pardon. You know, what does this sin cost David? I mean, the law said he should die. Leviticus 20.10, Deuteronomy 22.22. He deserved death. God commuted his his death sentence. But it still cost him, and it didn't just cost David. I mean consider what all is dead. His trust, his honor, his integrity, his respect. An honored and loyal servant, Uriah, a marriage child a way of life for David for Bathsheba for his family if you continue reading his family goodness a nation David not only sinned but he destroyed people that kind of begs the question of what would we have done to him? What have we done to others who've struggled with lust? None of us get what we deserve through grace. Hosanna in the highest. And you know, we look later at David's repentance, maybe skeptically, because it really isn't enumerated in, in chapter 12. You know, he didn't wallow in guilt and plead and beg and agonize over the situation. Read Psalm 51. And you'll see what it meant. And even though we see this, we have to realize that the intensity of our repentance does not contribute to our atonement. It's not what I do. It's what Christ has done. He is the atoning sacrifice for my sins. And it's not some vending machine form of forgiveness. It's not. It's the miracle kind. Do you get goosebumps on your soul with this kind of marvelous and costly forgiveness? Does it seize your mind? Convulse your emotion? Does it motivate you to seriously consider how you can submit to God Resist the devil when it comes to struggling with lust. Can you do that? So as we consider the solution, at least in my mind, I want you to consider a song by 10th Avenue North in their latest album called Cathedrals. Our hungry souls reach out to whatever fills us up. Open our souls to feel your glory. Let joy take temptation's place. Keep us from our lesser loves. Nothing else can satisfy. So when Jesus talked about adultery in the heart, that if a man looks lustfully at a woman, he's already committed adultery, and we may be thinking we have absolutely... No chance. And keep in mind the context of that statement. that It's about legalism, salvation through merit. It's through grace that we conquer. It's through Christ's resurrection that we conquer. It takes effort on our part. God doesn't just flash into our lives to work a piece of magic upon us and disappear. He just doesn't do that. To do so would eradicate our dignity. It would prevent us from participating. And he wants to empower and invite us to use our wills and our responsibility in this transformation of our desire. So the scripture to consider is 2 Timothy 2.22. It says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord of a pure heart. We run from. We run toward. We run with. In a book entitled Coming Clean by a guy who Operates um, a web browser filter called Covenant Eyes. It gives a a report of internet activity to an accountability partner. He writes in this book, Coming Clean, about the online disinhibition effect, the disinhibition effect. It's accessible, it's affordable, it's anonymous. Gotta flee. We have to admit and own up and take our responsibility. We need to evaluate and take our inventories. We've acquired this vice and all others through practice. So it's going to take effort. God can do the impossible if we do the possible. So what sorts of images and desire and expectations fill our minds and feed our hearts every day? How can my life, my thoughts, my choices, my emotional responses, my conversations, my behavior make me a person who's able to give and receive love in relationship with other people? And do my patterns of pleasure-seeking enhance or corrupt my relationship with God? We need to flee. And when you think about fleeing, I want you to consider this image up on the screen. You all know what this is, I think, right? The gentleman with the starter pistol at a race. You know how that goes in track and field, right? Runners on your marks, set, and then the gun goes off and they're out of the blocks, right? They flee the blocks. So when you're at your computer... And the thought comes into your head about a different website. You hear that starter pistol. You flee when your glance and your glimpse turns into something more. You flee. You run for safety, and that. Is what the word means. Flee. We run for safety. Not to our own devices. We run toward God. We run physically. We run visually. We run mentally. We run toward holiness because without holiness, no one will see God. God is light, and in Him, there is no darkness. And as Ephesians 5.12 says, it's shameful even now to mention what the disobedient do in secret. There are no secrets with God. And even though we have the strength to overcome temptation, 1 Corinthians 10.13, the companion truth is that we ourselves are utterly weak. We cannot do this by ourselves. Secrecy and sexual sin go hand in hand. There is no private solution. You have to bring it into the light. And lastly, we run with. We cannot do this alone. If we're left by ourselves, we simply don't have the strength to be honest. I wasn't. Our mind tricks are too great and our judgments and perceptions are too clouded. We need to let others see us as we are. And we need to allow God to love us through them as part of His healing, part of His solution through the Christian community. We need to encourage one another. That's one of the reasons why I go to Celebrate Recovery Every Friday. There are many books that have been written on this topic. I mentioned one of them, Coming Clean, another's Every Man's Battle When Good Men Are Tempted. There's a man, Mark Lasser, who has a ministry called Faithful and True. There is hope for us. Sin is serious, Christ is the answer. We need Him more than we think C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce and in that book he uh, describes a conversation a struggle that happens between a ghost and an angel the ghost is us and the ghost has this oily red little lizard on its shoulder that whispers to the ghost all the time. And as the angel and the ghost approach each other, the angel asks, Would you like me to make him quiet? Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Look out! You're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because, you know, up here, well, it's just so darned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it. Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll, I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly... Will, in fact, I'll, I'll let you, you'd kill it right now, but I'm really not feeling so well today, and I, I think it'd be silly to do it. I, I need to go see a doctor and, and uh, make sure I'm in good health for the operation. There is no other day. All days are present now. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if I did. It's not so. Why you're you're hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. I know you think I'm a coward. But it isn't that really it isn't. I say let me run back by tonight and get a bus and get an opinion and from somebody else. I'll come back the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. And further on he says, The angel, I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. Have I your permission? And later in the story, the ghost consents. The lizard's killed and it's transformed into a white stallion. Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Will you give God permission to do soul surgery today so that you're not looking in the mirror, hearing, You are the man. Will you? Let's pray. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, Lord. For your everlasting, immeasurable, relentless love. For your grace and mercy that seeks us out to restore us, to bring in us the work that you want to complete so that we may shine for you. Amen.